0: It's count Disney Welcome to Oral Hygiene. It's the podcast where you look at caught films, experimental films, educational films, and the like. Uh, this is Matt here. I'm actually bringing in the first guest for a little while to this podcast because it just tickles uh, several of my funny bones. Uh, we're looking at Disney's Fantasia today. As mainstream as you can get in a way, but in, in Disney Disney World, like not the place, but the concept, it's kind of, kind of a caught film, and it's definitely an a caught film, so <laughs> joining us today is Thomas Gorantz. He's uh, been making comics about conspiracies and such as The Paranoid American, and also spent a decade in the fishbowl at Hollywood Studios at Disney World, if, if I'm correct. That's right. Yeah, so how, how did that start? And uh, you said you were working on some of the um, post-ride materials, uh, primarily?
1: Yeah so, yeah, so first of all, thanks for having me on, man. I'm looking forward to, to chatting up all kinds of cool topics that, that might be new to you and some of your listeners. Um, my journey on how I got to Disney is a very winding one. I started in the military as a computer programmer and got out and then immediately was a professional musician for two or three years um, and started you know playing the actual world of like touring and, and producing for large artists and everything and hated every moment of it. You know, it was like my dream come true. <laughs> and then after a year, it was like, oh, this is, this is how this works. So I went in the complete opposite direction. I went back to school uh, in Orlando for animation and game programming and just a whole bunch of like digital art stuff, kind of combining, you know, music and my, my background in programming. And straight out of school, I got a job at Disney on, um, you know, Hollywood studios at the time. And like you said, it was in the little fishbowl, although at that time, they had already tinted out the windows. Um, and that little back lot tour was, I don't think anything that anyone went on anymore. The coolest thing back there is they had like stunt drivers that were practicing for like the stunt show that was out in the park and a couple other things. But it was it was technically the Royal Disney building in the back lot of, of Hollywood studios, which has since been demolished. And I think it's been replaced by Star Wars rides.
0: Ah, no, I remember taking that tour um, twice uh, when I was a teenager and once, yeah, seeing because they would show you whatever movie was being produced at the time. So I, I distinctly remember one time it being Pocahontas and the other time being, um, the, I don't El Dorado or it's, it's the one that eventually became The Emperor's New Groove, but it was at the stage where it was still going to be the, uh, the more serious movie.
1: Yeah, when, you might have been one it. of the very last people to take that tour before they started blacking out. The windows that must have happened the, the very, very end of the 90s, or maybe like the very beginning of 2000s, because I, I started working there around 2005, I think.
0: Yeah, this would have been uh 2001, I think, or maybe 2000, but yeah, yeah, so interesting stuff there. But um, oh, I lost my train of thought there.
1: <laughs> oh, you, you were asking me what I did there. Uh, yeah, yes, yes, yes. so. So first and foremost, I'm not an illustrator or a drawer. I, I basically do stick figures, but uh, a lot of my job when I was there involved all sorts of art direction. Um, so like one of the examples I was giving you is that if you go to Epcot at Orlando, they've got that big Epcot ball and inside that is a uh, Planet Earth, uh, Spaceship Earth, I think it's called, I forgot the name of it. Um, but you go on this like slow ride and it starts in like the caveman age, And you just kind of slowly go around you see like Steve Jobs inventing a computer at one point and, you know, medieval people discovering things. And when it kicks you out, there's all these interactive games and exhibits and stuff. So I worked on a lot of those uh, sort of interactives. And then also there's a VIP center upstairs that most people don't know about in the Epcot. Um, So there's like a little secret entrance and we did a lot of the interactive stuff for, for that upstairs stuff. Um, And then got to work on all sorts of really cool games and, projects using Disney IP, um, doing, you know, 3D animation, 2D animation. So pretty much the full gamut other than putting my uh, pencil in my hand and, you know, drawing something on paper.
0: Yeah, like I mentioned to you in one of the emails running up that uh, one of my weirdest childhood memories is Spaceship Earth breaking down, I think somewhere around the printing press. (laughs) i was <laughs> having to walk backwards through the entire ride with all the you know all the show lights are on and it was just pretty pretty trippy it's a little bit
1: weird when the lights come on yeah
0: yeah and just walking because you know the way it's built there aren't i guess there aren't actually back passages you just have to walk through the ride itself yeah because it's and down for
1: you to get out and walk around on your own for sure <laughs> um
0: uh, and I guess let's talk just a little bit about Disney and how you're drawing the lines together. You mentioned, um, I think it's uh, if I'm pronouncing it right, the the DeMolay Society.
1: Oh, DeMolay, yeah,
0: DeMolay. Okay, because yeah, I I grew up. I was in the Boy Scouts as, as an Eagle Scout, even. And I, when I heard about that, I was like, well, we have this Order of the Arrow thing in the the Boy Scouts, which I guess is kind of like a a similar vibe to that. Just the you know, the Boy Scout secret society. And this sounds like something a little bit similar.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So instead of like a secret club within Boy Scouts, this is almost like a Boy Scout society within Freemasonry. Although um, it's it's really hard to characterize it like that. It's more adjacent to Freemasonry. So for example, just because a kid might be in Demolay doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to become a Freemason. But it does mean that you know your equivalent of like the Cub Scout Master. That's going to be a Freemason. So every everyone that's like in charge within DMOA are Masons, but they're just kind of like raising kids, and and it has some weird connotations to it. But it harkens back to like the mid fifties or something. So for example, instead of your Cub Master, do you remember what you used to call them? Was there like a certain name? You just call them like leader or you know Cub Scout Master or something. Scout um, Master. For,
0: for Cub Scouts. I don't quite. Oh, Cub Scouts. It's pack leader. Um, and the Boy Scouts, it's Scout Master, and then or Din Mother if it's, it's a, if it's a woman uh, in the Cub Scouts.
1: <laughs> okay, so in Demole, it's mommy and daddy depending on gender. Um, so you're you're you know your Scout Master, your Cub Scout Master, whatever. That's daddy uh, or just dad. And then you know any female authority type is just mom. So that's one of the th- and the reason why I even bring that up is because. Walt Disney himself kind of had a sordid past with his dad to the point where he kind of denied his lineage. He, you know, he he thought that he was adopted by uh, some kind of nobility in Spain, and it was this, you know, Disney-esque story of a kid being kidnapped by like the evil, you know, parents and kept away from the castle that he rightfully belonged in. Um, but so he kind of had this lifelong issue with his dad, and here comes this Demolay group this quasi, you know, Masonic adjacent group. And the guy that actually founded this in the fifties, that was his Cub Scout master. He wasn't just part of, you know, some branch out somewhere. He actually, you know, was part of one of these original classes. I think it was in Kansas city. So to be under the wing of this guy that you're calling dad when you hate your own dad, and this legitimately, you know, giving you some kind of structure and foundation, it's very hard to understate how, much of an impact this had on Walt Disney's life and every single thing that came after that. He said as much anytime it came up.
0: No, I mean, that, that's a major part of one's life at the time. And even for me, I'm thinking some of the things that really like shaped my personality are like really small things, you know, not even like a society or, or an organization. So that could be that much more, you know, like I just remember like an interaction with a kid when I was growing up, you know, like uh, it, it was like, parents just wanted to get us out of the way and have us play together. And I was like, Oh, I want to play. And the kid didn't want to. Right. So I'm like, that's still kind of like, one, that's, maybe that's one of the reasons I podcast to like get over it, you know, <laughs> dragging people in the, to do things and <laughs> actually enjoying it. So, but it's, it's, it's a little thing. Yep. So something group like that. Catharsis, yeah. Yeah. Something like that's going to, of course, inform one's personality way more than just a single incident. And, and that can be very powerful as well.
1: So, so, I mean, that's, that's a significant factor, and it, it ties into this bigger, arc, you know, arcing theme of that, you know, a lot of the original source material from Disney has all sorts of folklore and, and uh, occult magical meanings. And it's not just pure coincidence. It's because a lot of this fit into the same framework that not just Walt Disney, but a lot of the people that he worked with and hired, um, you know, they were all very much in, in the same, you know, frequency almost. So to, to, to draw a point to the reason why Demolay is so important, he actually didn't become, as far as I'm aware, Walt Disney never became a Freemason. So you'll see all sorts of conspiracy theories online. He was a 33rd degree Mason, or he was a you know, a this and that. From what I can understand, he just was in Demolay and used it to um, kind of like help guide his maturing through you know, the Hollywood and just becoming a man. But like never actually went back and became uh, a Freemason or did much with Demolay aside from going accept their awards and write nice things about them whenever it came up.
0: It is interesting because, uh, of course, we'll we'll be looking a little more closely at Fantasia in a few minutes as kind of a main thing of those sort of a caught things being in a film. And today. It's like oh they secretly put this in you look at you look at the new doctor strange maybe and oh there i i have seen it once but maybe there's there's this little thing and this little thing kind of like being shoehorned <laughs> in but then i'm thinking uh, living in japan japanese animations usually very much on the sleeve uh some of the most recent popular japanese animations have been uh, about 5 years ago is a yokai watch which is a little bit like pokemon but it's all like kind of folklorish demons that basically everyone knows about (laughs) and uh kometsu no yaiba was that's demon slayer in the states that has a lot of that stuff right on this right on the sleeve and everyone in japan already knows about it the five-year-old already knows about all these these kind of disturbing folk tales
1: yeah and it's and it's not even like thinly veiled and there was actually a a pretty strong point that in, in the earlier years so when disney was first forming 30s 40s Uh, these topics were not really that much taboo. If anything, they were sort of the hot topics of the day. You know, it was like the interesting novelties that people might actually be talking about uh, in just common conversation if they thought, you know, themselves as interesting. It's over time, it seems that American culture has become a lot more sort of, I wouldn't say puritanical from a substance point of view, but from like a, a critical point of view. It has these like still very pure criticisms of almost anything that goes on. And it's kind of interesting that out of all of the, I think it's all the countries that have, um, you know, GDPs, like the all of the above average GDPs and anyone that has 50 percent or more that identifies heavily religious. The United States is like the only one in that entire category. So if you've got a GDP that's greater than over half the other side of the world then chances are less than half of your population is strongly religious. For whatever reason, uh, USA is is a complete outlier here. And I think that has a lot to do with how there's, you know, claims of of like nefarious uh, information being injected into movies by the Illuminati or by the Satanists or by, you know, enter the blank here on whoever's kind of your boogeyman. And that kind of rhetoric takes a much stronger hold in the United States than it does in, Europe or Asia or almost anywhere else in, in the entire planet.
0: Yeah, um, in Japan, the, the question, are you religious or are you not religious, barely even makes sense, because it's kind of in the background of Japan, like on New Year's, pretty much everyone's going to go to a shrine, you have a big test, you'll go get the fortune from the temple or whatever, but there's, not, you know, you find very few people that would be like a fundamentalist, you know, Buddhist or something, That that's kind of strange, right? <laughs> So. And,
1: and ironically, if you had some kind of like fundamentalist Buddhist teachings in a Disney movie, that itself could be construed as not necessarily satanic, but as like a cult. Or you know, they're they're slipping in <laughs> this this non wasp, uh, non Protestant programming into our you know children's media. Get it out of here. Uh, so I think there's some element of that, and that that element that goes way way back to you know Salem witch trials almost. <laughs> Um, it goes back so, so deep and so far that it's it's really hard to extract that out from American culture. But it's also, unless you're completely inundated in American culture, it might not be the easiest thing to understand that even people that consider themselves non-religious, they are heavily influenced by, you know, like religious-based morals and values that are just ingrained in the culture. So all of this adds up to people seeing a Disney movie and, thinking there's some kind of, you know, evil conspiracy behind it.
0: Yeah, yeah, I don't think, I don't think the Japanese really get too heavy-minded on that. The thing living here is there's, you know, all the unwritten social rules that you're just supposed to know. Once you follow those, go think and do what you want, basically. But you need to follow <laughs> these, these social, societal rules, some of which really don't make sense, so... <laughs> Um, But yeah, And and to be clear
1: too, I'm not talking about like a vast majority of Americans or even a small minority. It's it's a very tiny niche that gets very vocal um, on proclaiming, you know, all these nefarious and and built in messages, but they kind of reverberate and echo and last for decades and decades. So you'll hear the exact same claims, you know, the day that Aladdin came out, you're hearing the exact (laughs) same conspiracy theories now, you know, two decades later, three decades later.
0: I mean, I guess one of the, the big things is looking into that sort of thing can be super fascinating just to leave your sort of emotional stock out of it. Because if I'm just like, you know, how is this going to affect me like directly? Well, it's not, you know, so or or I, if it is, I can't really do much about it uh, from where I'm standing. So just, you know, work, do the best you can from your place of of power and, uh, you know, find the rest of the universe fascinating. So. <laughs> Um, yeah, seriously.
1: I mean, no, no disagreements here for sure.
0: Let's look at the world of Fantasia. If you were to be making the uh, TV guide listing for Fantasia, what would it say?
1: Oh, well, I mean, I'm used to the actual TV guides from back when, and it was like a sentence maybe. So <laughs> it was it was always very interesting to see how they would wrap up, you know, a fairly complicated um, plot line and just like a tiny little sentence. But I guess it would just be, um, you know, some of world's best orchestra pieces put to some of world's greatest animation altogether. Disney. Okay. Watch now something, but I mean, that's kind of encapsulates my idea of it too. It takes this really uh, beautiful pieces of music that probably are, were more appreciated at the time then, but you watch it now and it just sounds like old timey, you know, orchestra music. No one appreciates that how uh, sort of influential some of these original pieces that got selected are. And then just the quality of animation and even the topic, like some of the things that you see here, you won't see in Disney cartoons ever again, I don't think, um, you know, like, like dinosaurs dying and turning into bones and sort of um, like single cell organisms growing up. And the, the biggest one, which is my favorite, is uh, Chernobog, um, which, you know, you might have like a, allusions to him, but I think he's like one of Disney's coolest inventions, um, hmm. or at least coolest drawings of a known character but it's it's entirely like a disney invention the way that they they sort of created him
0: no it's one of the most nightmarish images you're going to see which is kind of uh interesting for a film you're going to take the family to I, I remember you know pooping myself as a kid once he shows up <laughs> so that happens yeah, so,
1: so was was this actually a, a scary movie to you when you saw it when you were younger
0: well um <sighs> I guess this segment was yeah sure um of course parts of it are kind of a you know when you're four you don't have the patience for some of it um, <laughs> i mean i guess that's why we have the dancing hippos to get the kids to wake up a little bit or something
1: <laughs> but um <laughs> I'm, I'm curious were there any other disney movies outside of fantasia that you found particularly uh like scary or frightening
0: well i know the uh I, I haven't actually seen this one since i was a kid but yeah the black cauldron i remember having a having another demon along these lines so i'll
1: have to rewatch that one i don't think i've seen that in a very long oh time. yeah
0: yeah they they try and kind of re-up on the on the um on the the satan in that one a little bit but uh if i remember correctly i'm trying to think what else oh there's the sequence this is live action but um right at the end of uh the black hole where maximilian chanel ends up in hell or something that's pretty disturbing <laughs> it's yeah the,
1: I th- I think Pinocchio is one of the, the scariest ones for me, too, when he gets kidnapped and there's, like, lightning and he's stuck in this little, like, carriage and the, the guy's yelling at him from the, the driver's seat. Oh,
0: yeah, for that one, for sure. Yeah, okay, I should think a little more in the past. Um, I, I It's been about ten years, eight or ten years. My daughter is now 12, so, mm-hmm. you know, when she was, like, two to four, of course, we were playing a lot of those.
1: Are, are there you know, any that you decided, like, this one might be a little too much for, you know, this age like we'll wait until she gets older to show her this disney cartoon
0: uh this one's not disney but i do remember picking up the blu-ray of uh rango and in the first five minutes she was like i think i need to be (laughs) older before i watch this
1: (laughs) (laughs) she might have been right yeah
0: yeah she might have been right but um (laughs) well i mean last last year she was like i want to see some horror movies and at first i tried to keep it like oh watch those adams family comedies and uh we watched The Goonies. She was like, no, I want real horror movies. So we watched The Shining and Alien. <laughs> okay,
1: that's not bad. That's not there a bad is, intro.
0: I think there is a... Yeah. When I, uh, Yeah, when, he, when Jack Nicholson goes in the room, whatever it is, uh, in The Shining, I was kind of like, okay, let's hit the skip here. <laughs> but otherwise, we watched The Shining. So... <laughs>
1: I recommend, too, this might be a, a weird one, but uh, Dead Alive, which was one of... Oh, God, yeah, Peter Jackson. Jackson's first, Peter Jackson, just because it, it, it's it got the gore, but it's also done in such like a silly way that it's hard to be scared of it, and it also prepares you for like much crazier gore that comes in movies that <laughs> that take themselves way more seriously after that, you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, I somehow actually managed to see that one in the movie theater, so...
1: <laughs> really? <laughs> I'm a little bit jealous, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's just, well, it was like the college movie theater with, uh, you know, so just a, a shoebox. But hey, oh, it's gosh. a movie I can claim to have yep. seen in the theater. So <laughs> um, sorry, I'm just going to my own notes. I kind of want to take a, a little bit segment by segment. Uh, the first one, we have the Toccata and Fugue and D minor. One thing from a musical perspective, I do a lot of music. I do rock. I do electronic. I do classical. But um. This is an arrangement of an organ piece, which I don't know if that bears anything. Uh, I think Stakowski, the conductor, actually made this arrangement. So maybe he just wanted to push his own arrangement. But uh, it is interesting that this is supposed to be one of those things that's being played on a an old church organ in an old cathedral, getting whatever energy and, and blasting sonic waves through you in that way.
1: Yeah, and another uh, interesting thing, too, that I guess is worth mentioning is that as far as I can tell, it's not like someone sat down before Fantasia started and said, we're gonna pick these musical pieces and play them in this order, and they're gonna be about these different animations. It was almost like uh, all the different animation uh, animators kind of broke up into teams and directors and just you know, went out and picked music and animated to it almost in little bubbles. I'm sure there was communication at some level, but it doesn't seem like anyone actually sat down and said, okay, if you guys are working on these five scenes, we're gonna do this thing that fits in. So there's a little bit of this this like hodgepodge collection, um, like like almost like an anthology feel to this whole entire movie. And there's also all sorts of different variations on order. So I think the original cinematic version of it, they played the clips in slightly different order than you would see uh, on the first major release. And then there's like Fantasia 2000, which inserts all kinds of extra clips, there's also a few that were left out. There's uh, animation that was partially done by Salvador Dali that wasn't finished in time for the film that you can watch kind of outside this. I think it was released on like a DVD extra. Uh, but I'm going into this just because the the specific songs and the orders um, doesn't seem like they had a whole lot of planning behind it when like they first started out. But all of the arrangement and the collection and the order kind of like happened afterwards. So the story, if any, is sort of laid on top and it depends on which order you watch the different sequences in on what kind of story that's being told
0: yeah from what I understand the original idea was uh, this is when you would still do movies as road shows so the idea was to be put out Fantasia every few years with uh, different clips taken out and new ones Placed in, which is why the Sorcerer's Apprentices in 2000, uh, I think they kind of wanted to, just at least like nod to that concept. But uh, the movie itself wasn't, you know, it wasn't so much it wasn't successful for I understand. It was just too expensive. Like you had to have this expensive sound system. Um, the contracts required like just premium projection equipment be used, and uh, they couldn't afford to display it in the end. Especially once World War II got, you know, real really cranking.
1: Yeah, and well, this was also a great way to take all the the profits and all of that that uh, prestige and rapport that had been built over their first few movies, and use it to invest in just highly experimental new workflows and new artists and incorporating music in new ways. Because I think Disney was one of the first ones that had really strong synchronized audio and um, you know full full length movie with. Music and multiple voice actors across the board. Before that, oh, it was very very limited. So this was his version of pushing the envelope a little bit farther than I guess the you know the media was ready or the customers are ready to, to kind of consume at that time. But you also notice that a lot of the characters that show up in Fantasia make appearances in in movies you know years and years to come. So it was almost like this being a loss leader. You know, let's invest all this. Information and time and money and energy into just developing IP, and they can just use this from like a big pool that they draw from for the next, you know, five decades essentially.
0: Yeah, really. (laughs) Um, Of course, the first sequence we don't get that, but we get the very abstract animation. Um, I was actually a little disappointed with Fantasia two thousand that the they use um, Beethoven's Fifth for that, and it's a little, it's not quite as abstract. Where here, it's just super abstract which I enjoy so honestly and this could be like Disney programming me man if you say the word music <laughs> if you say the word music I'm first thing I'm gonna think of visualize is kind of like a uh, a pinkish sky with weird swirls so <laughs> you know. yeah
1: I mean I'm right there with you too because if if you try to talk about like uh, earbugs um, you know like catchy little tunes almost every single one that I'm gonna think of is going to be Disney it's gonna be it's a small world it's gonna be hi-ho. Mm -hmm. um it's gonna be you know something that i heard as a kid because and it's probably even worse now because you know vhs tapes and dvds i guess now um or not even dvds like netflix but this is kind of like the thing that you put on to raise the kid and i guess before netflix existed it was whatever collection of those you know disney vh uh vhs cassette tapes that were kind of friendly for all families so you'd be guaranteed that if you're going over and being babysat or if you were going to be like hanging out with the kids somewhere where adults had something to do, they were just going to pop in beauty and the beast or uh, you know little mermaid for like the 200th time. And you're going to hear all those songs again. (laughs) So even if it wasn't your favorite song, like you're going to know them all by heart. Um, So that was, you know, I I feel like a lot of my, my, my almost chord progressions that I just like default back to are probably just coming out of some Disney movies at some points.
0: (laughs) No, that's, I had to go back downstairs and dig out the old, the old pink TPT folder for that so you know
1: and yeah. you mentioned too that, that you've been playing music for what, like 30 years or something yeah because i started i i had to kind of decide if i wanted to keep typing or wanted to keep playing because it was just too much on my wrist to do both 24 7 non-stop um and but i remember almost every really difficult piece if it wasn't jazz or some you know like soft ghetto um sort of like classical piece it was almost always going to be fake music from disney movies it was you know the lion king came out and i was getting all the fake um you know uh sheets from the local music store and learning those when i went to go to my lessons so again like disney was like ingrained in in my consumption and creation of music for such a long time
0: yeah, that's uh, another thing why I'm kind of like with the Bach at the beginning. Um, I'm a cello player and, I, you know, I have played the cello suites and getting in, and listening to them is, of course, one thing. But getting into them is like there's um I think it's the fifth one where the opening, you're basically playing a fugue on a cello, which a, a fugue is well, you probably know. But one melody starts and then starts to do its own thing when the other instrument plays the same melody does its own thing so you have multiple instruments uh starting off playing the main theme and then doing their own thing and now you're doing all of that on a single cello so it's kind of like it's kind of psychedelic just trying to play that
1: (laughs) and the cello is really interesting too i don't i don't know if we'll get into this or where i made this note but there's this concept of divisions of instruments and the fact that Um, say like a guitar or piano, they have set intervals between the notes. But when you get into like cellos and violins um, and some of the other string instruments, you lose that concept of incremental, like you can play, you know, incremental notes, but you also have this concept of like almost infinite possibility. Now, obviously, depending on the size of your finger and the size of the string and the size of the instrument. But, you know, in theory, if you had a very large Version of any of these string instruments, you kind of have an infinite range of notes and in-between notes, and this this uh, infinite way of always having the note half, half, half. Um, and this kind of plays into some of the instruments that are used in the the various scenes within Fantasia.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, especially on a cello, even if you're yo-yo ma, you're probably not exactly playing the note. It's it's pretty impossible to actually do that. You're and uh, especially when you're going way up on the instrument um, it, it, it's interesting uh, I only re- recently learned how to do that because in orchestras you never need to play that far up on the instrument but on in some solo music you do and it's weird because I'm like guessing but I'm still hitting the right notes so I'm like how's that how's that even happening because I'm like that can't be right it is right okay cool
1: I mean you're still just playing with emotion at a certain level right it's all just about tension and release and and subverting expectation and then coming back and fulfilling that expectation to the music and um, if your fingers are in the right spaces generally and you're kind of vibing it's it's almost like your fingers know how to evoke those emotions you're not you know the, the muscle memory almost takes over if you know where those notes roughly are then you can kind of like put way more emotion into that and you know go over some notes and and play a lot more and have a lot more flexibility, I think. And and again, to bring it back to the Fantasia aspect, I I do believe, I don't have the most granular examples of it, but I believe when they incorporate these instruments into these places, that sort of range of infinite possibility or at least being able to break outside of defined intervals is sort of incorporated within the the overall story and maybe some of the animations that they incorporate and uh, synchronize with those pieces.
0: Well, um, I'm not even well versed to like sit here and tell you what everything is supposed to be. But um, in the past, uh, composers did take certain instruments for certain emotional cues. Um, Trombones, for example, were supposed to signify death in symphonic works. So when you hear the trombones come in uh, until about anything written about before 1875, the composer is like, this is death coming in so i never
1: heard that that's awesome that's such a cool detail
0: (laughs) and um you would use you know oboes for a certain thing uh there's actually book i i don't have the attention span to read books on orchestration but if you do there there's (laughs) some composers that have written books where they kind of lay all this out so
1: no it's very hard it's almost like reading like math theory when you start getting into like music theory it's essentially math
0: but i think for fantasia it's a that I think that's kind of the most important musical cue. Trombones are death. If you're listening to Beethoven or Schubert, <laughs> the trombones are death. Uh, Mozart, I don't think, has trombones in any of his symphonies. But <laughs> yeah, it, it didn't start getting added in until about 1800. And, and that's what it signified. So um, I, I guess that probably comes up and in, in, at the end of this as well. So <laughs> um, let's move to some of the more, I guess, imagery we can really, really talk about. Uh, And you mentioned the order being different. And I was like, what, the Nutcracker second? So I feel like I definitely saw this at some point when the Nutcracker was not second. But
1: Yeah, and and I kind of took some notes. And my notes are based on some of the theoretical orders on if you were to try and make Fantasia, make a more cohesive story, what order could you watch it in? So I took my notes based on some of those orders, not necessarily on how the original cinematic or 2000 uh, orders came out. Um, so, so one of my my favorite ones to go into, and I didn't get to go into this one yet on any anywhere else. So the Rite of Spring.
0: Oh yeah, which, we can jump to that.
1: <laughs> so, I mean, we we can kind of like gloss over. So the the Fantasia originally starts out, and it's kind of got the entire orchestra, just silhouettes of them, and it's like a single color background. There's no animation or anything. And, and let me tie back to my overarching theory here is whether or not you believe in, in magic or whether or not Walt Disney believed in magic. Fantasia could very much, and you were mentioning you know, all this time that was invested in it, but it wasn't necessarily a huge commercial success. I guess my argument would be that Fantasia was sort of this magical spell, this huge magic spell that out of it gave birth to the, the Disney universe. Because prior to Fantasia, and all the movies that came after it, but you know, Disney could have just been like a one hit wonder. It could have been like a Max Fleischer animation studio or any other number of animation studios that got really popular and then sort of you know fell to the wayside. But after Fantasia, it really took hold, even if Fantasia itself wasn't that thing that did it, it helped create this whole entire magical ecosystem um, that le- allowed every other idea that came afterwards to sort of be nurtured within it. And the the occult theme here is that very much so when you watch this over, you could almost watch this as if it were this this uh, magical spell that's being performed or like a magical ritual. And this is further emphasized. So if you if you take that very first scene where it starts with individual instruments and silhouettes, you've got black and a single color, and then all of a sudden they start introducing multiple instruments. This is hearkening to this idea of like vibrations and energy that that are creating this like genesis of the universe. So it starts with the single tone, almost the monad. And then after this, it becomes more and more complex. And this is represented by additional instruments, more complicated colors. You start getting gradients. Then all of a sudden, some really basic abstract shapes start to form. There's like a lightning strike that goes with some kind of percussive instrument. Um, and then after all of this takes place, it starts shifting into actual animation. And this is where right of Spring comes in. Um, so everything prior to Rite of Spring is sort of these uh, silhou- you know, silhouettes and non-animation graphics. And I think this kind of represents like, this is God. These are the, the human beings that are about to create what you're going to see that gets created. And what is getting created is this animated universe.
0: Okay, so yeah, let's let's take Rite of Spring as the next stage of the narrative then. Um, at the beginning of Clip, they have the percussionists basically like having a clumsy fit, which I thought was interesting watching this time. I was like, why did they put that in there? And
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think this could be representative of the very first image we see, which represents the big bang. Um, so this is, you know, this, this cacophony, which almost is like the exact definition of all these percussive instruments kind of having a fit. This cacophony is represented of this, you know, absolute chaos explosion of the Big Bang. And then it becomes um, a lot more silent and then slowly instruments and different pieces start being incorporated again after that large, you know, percussion fit. So it starts with this Big Bang. And as you watch it, you see formation of galaxies. You kind of see like a Milky Way starting to spiral around. Then you see what looks like the formation of the Earth itself, followed by, it goes all the way and zooms into like, um, like the, the deep ocean and there's like these single cell organisms with little flagella that are like spinning them around, you know, almost looks like a science clip. And then these guys start dividing themselves, turning into more and more complicated organisms. You start seeing jellyfish emerge and crustaceans emerge. All of a sudden there's like a turtle looking dinosaur. There's probably a, a name for it, but it crawls out of the ocean onto the land. So it's, it's animating these huge milestones along with the music. And eventually Um, dinosaurs uh, start walking around. They succumb to this great drought. And then all of a sudden there's lava and volcanoes exploding. And this is kind of indicating, I don't think they actually show it, but like the meteor hit or the extinction of all the dinosaurs. So the the animation that they take to this uh, is very much this idea of like generation. It, It looks very scientific, at least from like this evolutionary point of view, it's almost like they're just animating the story of evolution uh, as it's been, you know, taught in schools, but then if you look what the actual um, music was about for *Rite of Spring*, it has, you know, very specifically occult connotations. So instead of uh, these single-celled organisms multiplying, coming into being, we've got—I'm I'm pulling some of this from some of the wiki on uh, the breakdown of *Rite of Spring*. So when it gets translated. The very first section is called Adoration of the Earth. And again, what is the, this first section of the Fantasia animation about? It's about Earth kind of coming together and being formed. So the actual Rite of Spring starts out with the introduction uh, with an orchestral and it's supposed to say a, a swarm of spring pipes. And then after this becomes the August of Spring. So they start celebrating it in the hills and an old woman enters and begins to foretell the future. Finally, the next one is the the ritual of abduction. And this is where these young girls arrive from the river. They are standing in a single file line and they begin this dance of the abduction. And this basically um, invites this old man to come and kind of whisk them away where they go into the dance of the earth. And it's almost like a feverish dance where they become into a passionate dance and become one with the earth itself. So again, there's a very loose tie of what the original Rite of Spring was meant to convey and the animation that we see Um, but there's correlations between all of them and and another interesting part of this is in the second part of the Rite of Spring is called the sacrifice and this is where the girls essentially one of them gets chosen to dance herself to death and and dancing to death is this like sacrifice onto the earth Um, so this again it ends in death just like the end of the animation Fantasia, it dies with, um, or it ends with all these dinosaurs dying, and you see their bones, and they're just kind of being crushed and ground back into the earth. Um, and the kind, of the idea here is the next scene is that new life comes from this kind of sacrifice that was given to the earth. So, I mean, the the way that I see it is they they seem so different, but they are both alluding to this same tale of. Making sacrifices onto the earth to make way for this new Rite of Spring,
0: and uh, when this premiered, it the, the Rite of Spring, the the piece, uh, the ballet, it didn't go well. I, I think it had like um, Stravinsky getting like pelted with tomatoes or something. After it was just seen as debased, like the music was so out there and the dancing was too lurid, and you know, I guess dancing yourself to death. It it uh, kind of was controversial at the time, and in 1940. Um, this much evolution on screen would probably still rankle a few feathers, I would imagine as well.
1: But, and it's it's kind of appropriate too because part of this, I don't I don't necessarily know if the Fantasia's version of of Spring* caused the same uproar. I mean, they literally were calling it a riot afterwards when they were writing about that initial debut uh, because it was so avant-garde. But I don't I wonder if it was because people were offended or if it just subverted their expectations so much that. They felt like they they hated it because, you know, it didn't satisfy what they were expecting to find out of it.
0: Yeah, there'd already been a few major atonal pieces before that, I think. So I don't think that's what would have done it. Um, and, and just to, to respond, I feel like this is before they had really theorized about the the meteor hit. So um, it seems that they just assumed the Earth was exploding, but in a sacrifice way that that certainly kind of uh, tracks. Um one thing i guess the the climax of this segment is the stegosaurus t-rex battle which was re recreated on the uh disneyland train kind of uh and this is Epca... a good example
1: of something that i'd be a little bit surprised to see frame for frame at least in like a modern disney movie because it's it's very like uh cold and callous and sort of brutal uh the way that it's represented in fantasia i, I believe
0: yeah, yeah, and I, yeah. Watching it last night, I'm like, wow, this is actually a pretty intense death. Fighting this much over seaweed too. So, and they
1: and they kick it off right. I mean, it's within like the first like 10 to 15 minutes. You know, you see all these cute dinosaurs and animals that were roaming around. are all just like uh, getting, you know, fighting with each other over like scarce resources. And this brutal scene with the T-Rex. And then they all like slowly dying with their way. It's it's very somber for the very beginning of a Disney movie.
0: There's actually a museum not far from here where they have, did I say Disney? There's a museum, science museum. Okay. There's a science museum (laughs) not far from here where they have a real nice like animatronic dinosaur. And they show this movie there, which is like really terrible CGI about the meteor hit end of the dinosaurs. And. I just for, just for saying the harrowing ending, it ends with, like, the baby dinosaur with its dead mother in the cold, like, like whining. And then the movie just ends. I'm like, whoa, <laughs>
1: that was intense.
0: So there's, like, kids crying in the theater.
1: <laughs> uh, I mean, like, uh, Land Before Time was very similar to that. That wasn't a Disney movie, but that had a similar, like, it opened up and you make friends with all these characters. And then everyone's parents are dead and they have to go and find, you know, like, new parents.
0: Oh, okay. See the end of this one. That that is the end. There's this is the last, the last of the dinosaurs. It's a whining baby dinosaur. So <laughs> um let's take I guess we'll take a look at the next segment just to keep uh time on a clip. Uh for your narrative list, what comes after the right of spring?
1: So the reason why this one comes next is the Nutcracker Suite, Dance of the Hours, and then Carnival of Animals and Brave Tin Soldier um these are kind of all smashed together but specifically Dance of the Hours and the reason why this one becomes next is again if we go back to the there's some qualifiers here so first of all again they didn't sit down and decide like what um animations were going to go with what songs and what order all the songs were going to go in at least I don't think that was ever the plan originally and you you mentioned some other reasons why because it was used to kind of get like a lot of replay value and show different clips as they went. Um, but all that said, because of the, the Demolay connection, which is this uh, Masonic adjacent, there's also this concept in Masonry and a lot of other sort of secret mystery schools where you, you pay attention to the construction of architecture and the architecture gives you an indication of how complex the society that created is. So in Dance of the Hours, they actually have these ionic columns which are one of the most basic forms of columns. Um, and this sort of, in a chronological bias, you know, complexity of civilization way, it dates the Dance of Hours to, um, to be earlier than, for example, in the Pastoral Symphony, because these ones show um, door or actually I might, have these, I might have these reversed. The Pastoral Symphony with the Doric columns and the Dance of the Hours with the Ionic columns.
0: Yeah, I saw, and that's basically the the carving, degree of carving detail.
1: Yeah, yeah. So yes, um, I'm going to butcher some of this because I'm so rusty on my classic Greek and Roman (laughs) architecture. Uh, It's not something that comes up very often, but essentially you've got uh, Doric, Ionic, Corinthian, um, composite, and there's one other one that kind of fits in between some of those, but it goes from like the most basic. So it's just a pillar with the caps um, and very little like filigrees and ornate additions to it, Um, going all the way up to the most ornate that's got, you know, all sorts of filigrees and like little like leaves carved out of stone that kind of wave themselves in and out. And um, sometimes they even have like astrological stories that are like carved into the columns themselves. So you can sort of look at the ornateness of a column, at least in in classical uh, speaking of, Figuring out like which one came first, because there's a natural progression of as civilizations became more evolved, they kind of like built on top of what the previous architects or masons, you know, Freemasons um, were kind of building. So it was always constantly getting more and more complicated. And now that took a definite change sometime after like the the 17th or 18th century, and then you know, Brutalism kind of came in and Postmodern and um, so like this concept of being more ornate meaning that you were more advanced sort of fell out of favor but when you go back to classical artworks uh, that's very much a way that that you can date things not to the exact year but to chronologically organize them
0: I've actually been a I'm in the middle of a book about guitars but not like specifically guitars is talking about like how they get the wood how the, the sawmills uh, all, which seems almost boring but you start reading it's very interesting talking about the difference between these craft things and industrial things so an industrial sawmill is way 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 bigger than a guitar wood tonewood sawmill because uh they're you know those go through all these logs where at these um the artisans making these instruments I, I mean this would go for violins cellos as well they're like maybe one out of a thousand logs is okay for our purposes to make this instrument so you know in the modern world we have we have to use make so many things and have so many materials i mean that's kind of one of the reasons i guess we don't see so much like artisanal stuff anymore
1: yeah well, i mean yeah i mean it's it's less efficient and also A lot of these time periods, when these very ornate things were being created, there wasn't necessarily like labor laws that got in the way of, you know, people calling it quits after their forty hours, or, uh, you know, so there was it was a completely different environment that enabled, uh, these you know, quote unquote like more civilized designs to appear. But as you have to like start paying people wages and letting them go home after a day's work, uh, some of that stuff kind of fell to the wayside.
0: Well, again, that that just to tie things back in that would be guilds making that happen with which the masons would have originally been a guild
1: yeah absolutely yeah it's a yeah, full circle absolutely mm-hmm.
0: um i guess we'll talk about pastoral a little bit then which uh <clears throat> i i you know i have played in the cello section of, i think pretty much every Beethoven symphony, because that's just going to happen when you've been playing for a while. So it's another one where I can kind of get my head in the music. Um, like Dance of the Hours, once, uh, you know, I just start hearing the Hello Mother, Hello Father, I've been smoking marijuana songs, so <laughs> Hello Mother, Hello Father, yeah. <laughs> I think there's another version, but um, let's go into pastoral a little bit. Um, this one's kind of interesting. Musically, it doesn't, like, not much is going on. Uh, there's a storm somewhere in the middle of the symphony, but it's kind of a calm one. I, I did notice this one actually puts, uh, I don't think they follow all the repeats, but basically in the entire symphony is here. They didn't really edit it, which I always kind of thought they did.
1: Well, and this one's interesting because story-wise, uh, when you're watching it, it, it almost looks like Zeus makes this appearance and you're like, okay, Zeus, the guy that throws the lightning bolts, this big lightning storm, this lightning storm represents Zeus and it's the creation of Zeus. But, but watching it more carefully, this, the storyline, no matter what kind of order you watch it in, it's kind of about Mickey Mouse, the sorcerer's apprentice, um, trying to skirt his responsibility. He doesn't wanna, he doesn't wanna clean up with the, the mops and the brooms and he's kind of like taking these shortcuts. He, it almost implies that he kind of like snuck in here and went through this magic grimoire and started casting these spells to to shirk his responsibility. And it was really Yen Sid, um, Disney spelled backwards. Who's like the actual wizard here that it was almost like, uh, Mickey like snuck in and, you know, was doing these things that he wasn't supposed to be doing. So the pastoral symphony, despite it seeming like it's Zeus, um, an interesting way to look at this sequence is that this is all the result of everything that Mickey's done. And it has this kind of Um, cacophonic feel to it as well which then summons Zeus it's like attracting his attention to to say like who's making all that noise out there you know it's like you wake up in the middle of the night and you hear like banging uh, pots and pans in the kitchen you think oh my kid got into the kitchen what the hell are they doing at, at midnight you know in the kitchen banging all this stuff it's it very much has that that aspect to it where the pastoral symphony is representative of Zeus taking notice of this mess that mickey is kind of made out you know out in the world
0: one contrast this is one where um I, i recently watched the other film so in soylent green they have the sequence where edward g robinson's character goes to the um the suicide parlor basically or the euthanasia parlor and um goes they put him in a big it's kind of a circle in the round theater and uh he's in a uh, put on a recliner and given whatever is going to kill him. And while the pastoral symphony plays and shows him all the images of an earth that's gone. So I just thought that
1: it's <laughs> a pretty rough way to go. I got to say,
0: well, it's it's supposed to be a really nice way to go. He's been living in an overpopulated place where they're just eating soil and green. There's no nature left. So it's like, here, we'll show you the, the lost nature while you, you know, zoom out of life. And yeah. Uh, I guess this is bringing in life. So it's kind of interesting that that's a little bit of the the opposite in Soylent Green. Like you're seeing reflections of all the nature gone while you die. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, it does show, you know, like the power of a good piece of music is you can take the completely uh, opposite interpretation and both work pretty well. So we have a lot of pans here. I actually wrote cupids. And then when I was like, Went back. I was like, "Wait a minute! No, no, no! These are pans that are kind of going around and making things happen here."
1: You know what? If you notice, the actual artwork gets reused later on in in some Disney animations that they are Cupids, but in this one, it starts out as as Pan. And this one, again, I think it's it's telling the story depending on the order that you watch it. But to me, the pan would almost come before Chernabog, maybe, or maybe immediately, directly after it, because you take it from this sort of puritanical American point of view, Pan sort of represents that, that pagan element um, that perhaps Chernabog also represents. Just they portray Pan as this cute, cuddly, um, you know, multicolored little uh, like like woodland nymphomos that's like dancing and playing a lyre, and, you know, he's smiling and hopping and you almost want to go and buy the stuffed animal and give it to your kid. You're not going to want to go out and buy the Chernabog animal and give that to your kid after the movie. But Essentially, in, in terms of like folklore context, you know, Pan and Chernobog um, sort of hold the equal weighting uh, within you know occult definitions.
0: Yeah, see the, the, you know, the image that comes across. Uh, another example here: the a lot of temples in Asia have the um, the protective demons at the temple gates, but they look terrifying. But they're supposed to be, you know, protecting the temple and making it a pure place. That's why they look so terrifying.
1: Well, I, actually, I, this is one of the topics that I really love getting into because now we're talking about um, archetypes that transcend culture and language. So almost every culture has got these archetypes of like the stern protector uh, that's there, you know, like the the Tyler of the lodge or the the bodyguard or you know the archangels. Um, or even the guardian angels can be very stern. These are these are archetypes that you can find in almost any sort of story. And just like Pan here is the trickster in some regards. In Fantasia animation, they don't necessarily portray him as a trickster, but there's no other way to interpret Pan the character aside from being a trickster because that's essentially his role to play in every story that he's incorporated in. Um, and then the fact that Pan himself sort of represents just paganism as a whole i love the kind of like lofty cartoony aspect to them that makes it so cute uh, in fantasia
0: yeah my my note was this is weirdly corny stuff with horses in 1940
1: (laughs) And, and it's very technicolor there's like unicorns and rainbows coming out from behind them and um it's there's a little bit of a corny aspect to that too but i would also say that if you were sitting down and watching this for the first time when it first came out, some of these colors and combinations and just ideas seem like it would have been overwhelmingly, you know, awesome to to watch. Like, it, it would have definitely been completely different than the short little things that you saw before movies prior to this.
0: Oh, um, an- another weird Japanese archetype. This one's not even a cult, but uh, I see it everywhere. And I had to ask my wife about it. She, she's Japanese, and a lot of ramen shops, especially it seems to be ramen shops most of the time. It'll have a picture of the chef just like just looking really angry and I'm like, why do I keep seeing this? Does he have a knife? Like, <laughs> yeah. No, um the apparent the explanation is, oh, well, he's serious about making the ramen. <laughs> Cause you know in <laughs> In the States, you'd show like a like, hey, like a happy looking, inviting chef, where here they have this dude that looks totally pissed off. Oh, well, he's serious about the, the ramen. So it must be <laughs> yeah. the idea is it must the, be really good. In the
1: good. States, it always looks like a promo for like their their reality show or something.
0: Yeah, exactly. We see that too. But that, that was one just just the idea of uh this fearsome face being the inviting face in the end, or the protector of the serious face is 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 interesting and in how different cultures interpret that um i guess i guess we have to bring up this is the infamous band disney segment as well with the uh they took out the um black unicorn i believe who the explanation is i think be, because she was appearing in what seemed to be a subservient role do, do you know what I'm? I'm getting. No, at? you're gonna have to. You're gonna have to okay. inform me on some of those. There, this is when the the centaurs are frolicking in the um around the pond or whatever. Okay. Yeah,
1: we're the same uh, segment here.
0: I I think you actually can spot the centaur in a few spots, uh, like in the background, if I remember. But there is one where she's featured, but she's like I don't know, like washing the hooves of another one or something. So they have panned and scanned it in to take her out. I th- maybe it's the two oh, golden hair I think it's the two golden hair uh young lover uh centaurs and, and and that's a zoomed in shot because they've edited out this uh one centaur just uh as a band Disney fun fact
1: yeah it's interesting because um a lot of the things that Disney puts out they have a lot of control over the versions like you know um are you familiar with the disney vault uh, oh, concept yeah, yeah, so, I yeah. Have some of those. <laughs> So, so Disney has um, almost unprecedented control over the media, at least pre-internet, right? Um, now with post-internet, you can seek out all of like the unbanned and unedited versions uh, prior to all this. And they're always worth watching because there's a lot of Disney movies where small scenes get taken out and clips of dialogue. I think that for a while, it might not have been on the Disney Channel Plus, but on one of the paid services, they kind of had like classic Disney and when you went to play it, it always started with like a disclaimer of, you know, this was written and animated in a completely different time. Um, but they they mentioned that they intentionally leave things that were typically edited out in future DVD releases. They leave it in on some of the streaming services. I think that was probably pre Disney Plus.
0: <laughs> yeah, I used to blow people's minds with Der Fruer's face, which they did put out on DVD at least once. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which if... Uh... For those that don't know it, that basically has Donald Duckett's Hitler. <laughs> Zeke Heiling and everything. It's pretty wild.
1: <laughs> I mean, to be uh, fair, he was supposed to be like the the bad guy in that, but just the fact that they branded one of their main characters as Hitler is as uh yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um that's pastoral. We were also, I guess, talking about uh Dance of the Hours a, a little bit in tandem. For me, i I felt like that was the one where I was like, I don't know if I can really tie in much depth. I mean, you mentioned the columns and it's like, oh, that's a lot more depth than I picked up in I the first place. I had to stretch
1: pretty far to get some depth out of it, yeah. There's there's also um, uh, an element of elephants in both of those scenes that feature columns and very loose correlation here, but the ones that are dancing um, uh, in the tutus do seem as though they could be potentially like more advanced of a culture if you wanted to to classify you know dancing hippos into different cultures <laughs> the ones with the more advanced architectural columns also came um after the the more simple sort of like personalities which is again it's a very long stretch here but if we're trying to find something for each of the segments that's probably the most uh like a coal esoteric uh interesting aspect if you want to like read really really deep into it
0: yeah i can't remember where i read this so it's completely unsubstantiated i do seem to remember uh, at least some cultures referring to elephants as a symbol of knowledge
1: yeah it's, it's like depends on the culture you're talking about there's also one of the first uh, uh, in dumbo they reuse this concept of the pink elephant i think when dumbo oh, gets yeah. <laughs> drunk or he gets inebriated that become that's in my mind that's a way more iconic version of maybe what um you kind of see echoes of in in this film
0: no i actually the pink elephant scene is pretty much my my favorite bit of disney animation so that's a
1: (laughs) creepy one man i mean uh if you were to just sit your kid down in front of that without building up to it it's it's definitely a little (laughs) bit of a a creepy animation
0: yeah we got the rest of the movie in first but i'm like this is like fully psychedelic that's (laughs) wild so um oh and the this the one the last thing on dance hours i did find it weird like yeah, they're kind of like, like, not sexualizing. Oh, sure, sexualizing these giant animals. I'm like, that's kind of weird.
1: <laughs> I mean, if you're sitting down in this dark office just drawing, you know, female hippos for months on end, <laughs> um, this comes up too in other Disney films where animators will sneak in sort of hidden messages or you know, naughty little bits here and there. I mean that I believe same thing. If if you see some weird sexualization of like an inanimate object or uh, what another one it's like Beauty and the Beast, right? They make like the candlestick like <laughs> have like these sexual sort of uh, like gait as it walks and things like this. I feel like ha- at least half of this is just a side effect of an animator that's been stuck in a dark room for far too long. Oh,
0: um, I, I I teach kids in Japan, so I was teaching like four or five year olds, and I was using this dr seuss abc book and i'm on letter letter r and a kid just starts looking up and going which means penis in japanese so i'm kind of like oh don't, don't say that now and then i look down i'm oh, like the- i'm <laughs> like dr seuss drew the the rhinoceros does look like a cock <laughs> <laughs> so i was like okay kid that was actually a pretty astute observation there
1: <laughs> he's got some some uh, band works as well now
0: yeah. Oh, and we follow the um, yeah, yeah. yeah. I remember hearing about that. <laughs> we we follow these elephants and hippos with the the red robed crocodile. So a little bit of a eyes wide shut vibe. If we're really stretching.
1: <laughs> and there, I mean, honestly, I I would have to do a much deeper dive than I've had time to. But there's probably some interesting astrological things that you could assume out of all of this, because um, because from not just straight. Uh, astrology symbols, but also like the family crests and the animals that would represent different families throughout history and, and time periods. The hippo and the alligator and the ostriches specifically all actually have very strong sort of occult connotations. Again, depending on the culture and the time period, um, you know, like an elephant could mean intelligence or it could mean the opposite of intelligence. It all depends on what your, your context is.
0: Yeah, actually, I think we're both talking each other into saying there might be a little more of the segment than we thought at first.
1: Well, <laughs> oh, I mean, there absolutely is. It would just it would take watching these segments many, many times over and and just reading into them.
0: Yeah, that's not the one I want to watch over and over. Right, of spring sure, you know, Bald Mountain. I watch that over and over. Oh, yeah, if CR you want to go deep, I good. mean,
1: Bald Bald Mountain's probably my favorite one on the whole thing, just because it's the most you know overtly occult, and it's also I. Th- I think, you might um, have a better insight on this, but I believe that Night on Bald Mountain is the most direct translation of this animation looks very close to what the music theme itself was written around.
0: Yeah, Masorsky wrote a letter, um, just one of his friends, when he composed it, and more or less describes what you're seeing in this animation. Um, Let's see, if I, I think I might even have that up. Nah, I was, re- I was reading it not too long ago, but it seems I don't have I've, I've got his letter like here Peter. if you want me to, to read oh, out yeah, yeah, it. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. If you want,
1: yeah, you go ahead and give us the letter. So, so this was a letter from him to Vladimir Nikolsky. And he says, so far as my memory doesn't deceive me, the witches used to gather on this mountain, gossip, play tricks, and await their chief, Satan. On his arrival, the witches formed a circle around the throne on which he sat in the form of a kid and sang his praise and when satan was worked up into a sufficient passion by the witches praises he gave the command for the sabbath in which he chose for himself the witches who caught his fancy so before i finished what he was writing this letter i just want to harken back that this is very very close to that rite of spring um you know sort of like story where the instead of witches it's like these fair maidens um and they go up on to the field instead of a mountain And one of them is chosen to dance themselves to death and sacrifice unto the earth. So again, we've got this group of witches that go onto a mountain and some of them get chosen to become a sacrifice for in this case, Chernabog or Satan. Uh, And Chernabog, I believe translates to black God. Um, So so anyways, the, the finished rest of his note here, he says, at the head of my score, I've put these contents. First, assembly of the witches, their talk and their gossip two, Satan's journey, three, obscene praises of Satan, and then four, the Sabbath. The form and character of the composition are Russian and original. I wrote St. John's Eve quickly, straight, always, and full score. I wrote about it in 12 days. So he's mentioning, it was almost like this feverish thing that, that was in him, and he just had to get out. It wasn't something that he had been necessarily working on over many years, at least not the final product that he put down on paper. And also the reason why St. John's Eve is important here is that St. John's Eve is essentially a representation of, of summer solstice. This is midsummer. So have you seen like the scary movie Midsummer? Have you seen, um, you know, that, that was like a horror movie, but the concept of winter solstice and summer solstice, this is what this was written about, this original piece um, and this witch's Sabbath, this happens on that Midsummer's Eve. Um, and it's leading up to this, this event of Chernabog.
0: Yeah. Um, I, I have not seen that movie yet, but it is on my list of things to get to, but a, a couple of things about Mussorgsky that's kind of interesting. Um, I think he didn't have the formal training of most composers and was a bit of an outsider. So, um, and, and a bit gruff in personality, like, like in the music world, he wasn't like that well liked. <laughs> um. The other thing about him, and I don't know if this has bearing or not, um, it said he scored this in twelve days, which is actually interesting because he usually shied away from scoring. Uh, other than this, his most his best known piece is uh, "Pictures at an Exhibition," which he only wrote on piano. Uh, someone later turned it into a, like a symphonic work, so it's kind of this outsider guy. It's almost like you know, maybe this is a the story and the music is an outpouring of his frustration or something. <laughs>
1: I, I mean, I've, I really do love reading some of the, the history on this one because like when you watch Fantasia and you see the animation first, it's hard for me at least to separate the visuals that are being presented to me from if I just sat down and listened to it without ever having seen visuals. Um, so uh, so it's, it's hard for me because I, I definitely saw the animation probably the first time that I, I heard this and actually was paying attention to it. But I want to believe that if I sat down and I knew what he was writing about and just listened to the music, the things that he's evoking through the music alone uh, very much correspond to what you're hearing. And so he he had in the actual animation, it doesn't necessarily have all these even breaking points where you can see it transitioning from one step to the other. But he kind of had a list of exactly how he wanted it to come across. So it it starts with this subterraneous roar of non-human voices and uttering non-human words and then these kind of um, these murmurs are supposed to be bringing this sleeping peasant out into the the mountain essentially and then it turns into this like foreboding and foreshadowing Chernabog as he kind of like rises out of this uh, mountain which I believe is is based on an actual mountain it's called like the three-headed mountain or the 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 mountain with three giants or something, but technically it was much farther away from where this ritual was rumored to have taken place. So I think he kind of mixed geography up a little bit um to you know to make the story make more sense based on incorporating different forms of of folklore essentially.
0: Yeah. Um I was just thinking we have these very not well, they're volcanic, not satanic, but <laughs> there's a Outcropping of volcanic rocks not far from here, which it kind of has that look. You can just like kind of walk around in there and it feel like you're in hell for a while. It's that's actually what's called uh oniashidashi, which is like uh, the devil's plane. <laughs> so,
1: are, are there any like uh like folklore or uh any like I guess like urban legends around that area or, or not so much?
0: Oh god, there's tons of them. Yeah. Uh, Nagano itself has quite a bit. Um, I'm trying to think of one that's specifically. Nagano well there, there's lots of fun Japanese urban legends where um, you, you meet the woman wearing a mask on the street and this predates COVID by far by the way <laughs> a woman's wearing a mask on the street the young woman asks, asks if you think she's beautiful and if you, you say yes or something she'll take off the mask and she's like horribly scored and if you like wince she'll kill you or something
1: <laughs> so, wasn't like a Medusa legend in a way
0: a little bit, yeah. Uh, I think if you don't respond, though, she'll go away. I don't. I don't quite remember. <laughs> so,
1: what's the what's the moral of that story? Because usually in in the Western mythology, there's like a moral to like why they act a certain way. So, what would be the the reason behind that? Or is there is um,
0: beauty's only skin deep, I guess.
1: <laughs> but or it's just like just ignore people that <laughs> yeah, ignore some... people that ask you uh, to Something talk to like them. That. <laughs> oh
0: here's a fun one this is this is um elementary schools all across japan they actually i think harry potter borrowed bar, this concept because uh they have um uh, hanako which is the the girl ghost in the elementary school toilet
1: it's that specific <laughs>
0: yeah 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 Han- her name's hanako she lives in the elementary school toilet like a year ago a year or two ago my daughter had picked up a manga which was um translated to toilet-bound hanko kun kun's a boy so the the thing of the manga was no it's actually a boy so it's popular enough for someone to like do that tweak and make a manga out of it
1: (laughs) is this like every school there's theoretically a a ghost in the bathroom
0: yeah pretty much um especially the old ones yeah because my daughter she just started junior high she's in a nice new modern building but her elementary school is positively ancient and like uh, i kept asking oh there's got to be ghosts in there and she's like no i just kept telling the other kids there were ghosts i don't think there were any ghosts (laughs) (laughs) she was the the instigator of the stories there but but yeah the toilet bound um hanako is is definitely a a fun urban legend i guess that i'm
1: I'm curious when you talk when you talk about ghosts um there is there the same concept of like it has unfinished business so a ghost is almost like a problem that is looking for a solution or is it more embraced as like it's just a ghost
0: it's more. i guess i should be using the word spirit more than ghost uh now as far as hanukkah and the toy leg well i guess either or because
1: there's not really such thing as like a spirit necessarily and that i'm aware of in like western modern culture it's if you see an actual spirit it's pretty much a ghost unless you are of you know some other specific religion but even it's, if you're like even if you're like a religious <laughs> uh if you saw a spirit or talk about seeing the spirit it's like interchangeable with ghosts
0: um actually some good some of the ghibli films have some pretty good sort of representations of the japanese vibe. uh totoro totoro is the spirit of the mountain and uh there's this un- there's kind of this underworld of spirits with you got the cat bus um Sen no chihiro spirited away has that same thing where this sp- they aren't Ghosts, there's spirits that are at this bathhouse.
1: Yeah, I've, I've seen that one. The, they're almost described as like echoes at, at some point, I think.
0: Right. That's why I like the um, the yokai watch anime somewhat. I mean, it's it's a silly anime basically for kids, but I, I was entertained by it. I liked it. Um, but uh, yeah, the idea is the yokai go and kind of like like both cause and solve actual people's problems. So that's where the it gets a little Pokemon because they had you pit your yokai against this other yokai trying to cause a problem. <laughs> <That's interesting>. So <laughs> yeah. Uh, what was there? Like there's the dog-faced lawyer or something. No, no, it's a lawyer-faced dog. It's like this dog that has a face of a lawyer. And, and that one is more of a ghost because he actually did used to be a human, but he's, you know, been warped into some kind of spirit. So it, it's a little the concept's a little different. Yeah. I remember it took me a few years to work out the whole the whole concept of uh the Um, ghosts and spirits in Japan so it it is different
1: so I'm curious on, on a slight tangent here but I know that there's freemasonry in Japan so the concept of like western occultism obviously exists there and it's not a complete you know foreign concept to everybody but are there is there a different form of like occultism that you're aware of that's not fitting into the same mold as like European based occultism
0: Oh, ab- absolutely. Um, excuse me. One would be, you'll often find like like near a train station or something, someone set up like a little table with the cloth over it, and they're doing like this certain kind of palm reading, but it's a, it's a little different than the um, than the Western version. They have a different idea of how that works, but it's just set up like it's not like you have well, to go to the back alley. Is the end alley. result
1: that you pay them money?
0: <laughs> yeah, kind of. And, and like I said, when people uh, at the beginning of the year or they have a a big test coming up, they'll go and they'll buy a little fortune from the uh, temple. So this year, my family went, my daughter got the best fortune and I got the least. fortune. <laughs> oh, well, I guess so does, that,
1: does that count as religious in any way, in your opinion?
0: That's what, that's what I'm saying. It's kind of like a thing that people do at that time. I mean, you know, there are people that will go off and become monks. There was a um, J-pop band about 10 years ago called Funky Monkey Babies, and they weren't funky at all, but whatever. But <laughs> the guy that, produced the music uh when you'd see them it'd be two guys up front singing and then a guy at the back basically just waving his hands because he already produced the music <laughs> but uh he quit to become a monk because his family he, he was in the lineage to become a monk. He's like well i'm gonna go be a j-pop star for five years and then go be a monk so <laughs>
1: that's pretty cool <laughs>
0: so that was kind of interesting but I, I think a big difference is no one evangelizes like no one's going to be like you need to become buddhist you need to Pray to the spirit. It's like, no, we go to the shrine in town because that's emblematic of our town. That's like, you know, the spiritual center of our town. Uh it's not necessarily believing anything. We're not believing anything. So I mean, you can get quite serious about religion if you want to in Japan, but no one really just turns their back on religion because there's nothing to really turn your back on.
1: <laughs> Do you, but, you notice any sort of like astrological signs baked into um, they go Chinese culture and
0: yeah. They go Chinese calendar, so it's by year. Um, oh, here's a big one. Um, what, what, what's your blood type?
1: Uh, I think it's B positive.
0: But you're not sure. I, I can only remember what mine is. But that's a big thing in Japan. Uh, your blood type is like your what's your sign? It's what's your blood type. Really? So each blood type fits a certain personality profile, according to um, Japanese thought. And it's and so that, that's
1: almost like what's your star sign, but it's what's your blood type?
0: Yeah, so it's not astrology as much as, as blood ties, which I guess makes a little more sense. Like, you know, as far as like just how the world's atmosphere at the time is, I, th- I think astrology has something to it, but am I going to find a new girlfriend tomorrow? Uh, probably not. But uh, yeah, but you yeah. Know. But,
1: well, and just to be clear, too, I, I think the, the reason, at least, I'm uh, really fascinated by astrology and how it ties into occultism is that a lot of the times you'll see astrological signs and artwork and things baked into say like religious texts or just into like architecture. A lot of those times, the the astrological symbols are there to like date things or to describe a story of here's what came first, here's what came after. Or for example, like the concept of Aquarius or the water bear is very often used to represent the concept of knowledge. So whenever you see that astrological sign, it's also almost like a little cliff notes indicator of like, when you see this icon somewhere, you know, whatever the context, it's actually talking about human consciousness or knowledge or gaining knowledge or um, expanding your your horizons in sort of uh, like an academic way. So then when you actually see it used in places, if you, there's a, a phrase of like, if you have the, the eyes that know how to see, um, then like when you see this thing, it's not just a scorpion on this guy's foot. And it's, you know, it, it's representing like the constellation of Scorpio and it might be him doing, the artwork that you're looking at, it might be trying to present it in a certain context that relates directly to that. So I, I guess I don't know if there's any sort of like example of, you know, um, like a classic artwork or architecture that you walk around and you and you just notice like, oh, there's always like a dog there. There's always, um, you know, I don't know what all the constellations are and the animals and the stories that the re- they represent, but very often they can be incorporated in places where they're there to like, have you um, remember certain aspects of stories and then correlate that message of the story to whatever you're looking at.
0: Oh, yeah. Um, You know, all the carvings and things, um, like in the temples specifically. One interesting thing is um, when you see a temple's architecture, so there's kind of main temples. Uh, I live in Nagano. We have Zenkoji, which is one of Japan's main temples. Uh, Nikko is a pretty famous site where they have this very ornate main temple. And then that temple franchises. So as you get maybe in a radius of it could be like 100 miles or 500, if it's a really big temple, you'll find smaller ones in that same design with many of the same visual elements, because it's kind of a, you know, affiliated with this main temple. And, And you'll see them next to each other. So if you see this really red one with lots of colorful carvings, oh, that's the one in Nico, whereas you see kind of an austere, you know, Zen wood hued um, Temple—that's that's the Nagano one, for example.
1: And you and you pick up that based on the, the the color palette and the types of architecture.
0: Exactly. Once you become familiar with the way this certain brand of temple looks, I mean, it's like how we can recognize a McDonald's and a KFC from each other.
1: Yeah. So I guess, I guess from an occult aspect, um, it would be looking into like why those specific colors. Does that particular color represent? some deeper meaning of some story that if you knew the underlying story, it's like, oh, well, the reason that pillar is red is because of, you know, the blood that this particular animal bled when it went through this process. And, um, that's kind of like that, that deeper occult meanings. It's really fun to kind of pick apart.
0: Yeah. Like, um, you're mentioning, no, no, there aren't people that are so much I'm religious, but I, I do a fair amount of meditation, usually on my lunch break and I go to a couple temples near my work and, um, I'll, I'll do a few of the Wim Hof breathing things, and I got a breathing exercise. But uh, most of them I'm sitting up, you know, straight. But a few of them I might lie on my back, and i have noticed looking up, and the ceilings of these temples are very rough-hewn logs. I mean, they've been worked on. Nagano is well known for work, ro- uh, not road work, woodwork, but it's like so it's been worked on by a skilled craftsmen, but it hasn't, it hasn't been given straight edges everything's still natural. And uh, as Alan Watts would might say, everything's still squiggly and not pretty. Yeah, <laughs> so they, they leave it squiggly, but they leave it in the, in the ceiling of the temple. So when I'm lying flat on my back, I'm like, Oh, there's these three big logs, but you really have to be looking for them. Uh, in the family house, there's some sculptures and a table or two, which is just totally weird squiggly wood. So I do like the idea of, Oh, we're going to take this wood and kind of, Try and keep some, we're going to, we're going to polish it, you know, make sure you don't get splinters from it, make it kind of shiny, but it's going to keep its natural form.
1: There's, I I don't, this, it correlates in my brain. I don't think that there's like an actual real world correlation between these two, but the concept of like this finished yet unfinished raw material, the exact same thing that happens at least in the Catholic church, where typically um, the altar that the the father stands behind um, is usually... A unfinished piece of stone It's supposed to represent like humanity as this unfinished piece of work that is yet to be perfected. Um, so whenever, whenever you see an intentional unfinished um, component, especially like part of a foundation or like the roof of a, a temple. Uh, That always makes me think back to this symbolism of, you know, this is a house where you're trying to connect to um, this higher spiritual power whatever. And the fact that this unfinished wood kind of represents that the things inside this temple are also unfinished and wanting to become more polished.
0: Yeah, a lot of places in Japan actually take that a step farther. When you visit a grand old cathedral, it's quite old. It might even be a bit of a ruin. Uh, like in England, the older cathedrals, um, they've been there forever. They were built to last, but they look quite different now than they did, say, uh, I think Notre Dame used to be like pastel colored inside. It's like, you know, things like yeah, that. Yeah,
1: that's that's a really cool thing is that a- almost all of the um, classical like busts and sculptures that you see constantly in pictures and movies and, and repurposed, um, a lot of those were painted to be, you know, like flesh colored at one point and then other points they had, gnarly, probably like psychedelic, uh, vibrant colors. And most of the time, just the elements and the sun and just, you know, erosion knocked all that paint off to the point where people got so used to seeing it as this like unfinished uh, pure marble sculptures, not realizing that they very frequently were painted.
0: The contrast in Japan is if you go to a temple that's been here uh, for 900 years, 900 year old temple, it looks exactly like it did 900 years ago. (laughs) The reason being they tore it down and rebuilt it 50 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) So they'll tear it down and rebuild it exactly how it was. So when you see these historical sites, you're absolutely not seeing the original, but you're seeing something that looks more like the original because these are, you know, when you tear it down, you have to make sure you're going to rebuild it exactly the same. So
1: yeah. and, And it's interesting too, because a lot of different cultures throughout time give more or less importance on sort of retaining that like the actual artifacts versus just knowing that they were there and just building back on top of them is just as good as like preserving the actual um foundation and you know at all costs making sure that you preserve it forever um, it, it kind of goes through ebbs and flows on how much certain cultures care about you know retaining all of that yeah, I figured, and I don't think there's like a, a pro or con on that, because because if you look at it from so again like an occult perspective, the whole concept of a magic ritual is not about the the place that it happens in, or even like the specific tools that you're using. Uh, and even if you extend this to like the Christian church, there's a lot of factions that necessarily it's if you just get enough people together and congregate, um, you've just formed a church. It doesn't matter if it's in a field or if it's in a fancy building. Um, When it comes to like magic occult rituals, it's all about the repetition. And it's almost this concept of of like um, reverberation where you you put this prayer, you put this ritual out or, you, you know, you go and you meditate. And if you just keep meditating in the same place for thousands and thousands of years, just the fact that people keep going to that same place and doing that same action is a religious act even if you're not a religious person just that act itself is by definition religious um, and that could be construed as this like magical ritual that you're just strengthening over time with a thousand people are going to a specific place with a specific intent and acting on that intent that's almost textbook definition of magic uh, whether you believe in like the woo-woo aspects of it or not.
0: No, I mean I when I go to these temples and do my thing, I always sit in exactly the same spot. So
1: <laughs> it's real it's a religious experience. Even some people, you know, add these connotations to uh religion as if it means that you have to be worshiping some old dude in the sky with a beard, or you have to be worshiping, you know, a fat guy under a tree, or um, but none of that really necessarily uh is required for being religious. Religious is just doing the same thing over and over and believing that. You know, you doing that over and over is having some greater effect than just like the most obvious superficial versions of it.
0: Yeah, like, I, you know, it becomes so rote. Sometimes you're like, is this still working? And then it'll be like, whoa, what, did five hours just pass? And nope, that was five minutes. So I, something worked there. <laughs> so that's kind of cool. Um, let me see. I just, just want to look at Bald Mountain. Uh, we, we, well, we got to get the Mickey to,
1: before we finish, but uh <laughs> well, I wanted to mention, too, that in Bald Mountain, again, disney being a, a very american and cultured film um and the the point of time that it came out but to hearken back to this this theme of sort of puritanical vision and you know looking at these things as if it's like god versus satan almost you know if, the, if there's pagans in it that's satan if there's turnabog that's satan everything is satan and almost uh, like clockwork the very end of that scene on bald mountain um, you actually hear Ave Maria. That's the song that all of the villagers, they begin to kind of sing and they're they're marching through the town. And this is what sort of subdues Chernabog and forces him to like wrap himself up and go back into that mountain. And this is almost impossible to not see as like the concept of this Christian God uh, being called upon to sort of, you know, shine light on this evil Chernabog. Um, so again, it's it's kind of, not just the American Christian aspect, but this occult aspect of you know calling upon the light to cast out the darkness, and it's played for visually almost beat for beat here.
0: Well, yeah, you can't tell if they're carrying candles or if they just have halos. So, <laughs> I thought
1: that was yeah. When I watched it, I mean, they look like more pagan monks, you know, going out <laughs> to do another magic ritual. Who knows? But um, clearly, that the music there is not an accidental inclusion to follow up the Black God with Ave Maria.
0: No, I mean, uh, they say it in the narration. They were kind of mashed up on purpose. So, you know, there's not even uh, any duplicity. He says it right out front. The other one that got me in the end was uh, the clouds. They looked really UFO-like in 1940. Like, they looked like the 1950s sort of UFOs in the sky, and I thought that was weird.
1: (laughs) I didn't pick that out, although it's an interesting observation.
0: Yeah, so... Um any I think I had one more. Oh oh I just was gonna say it's the most metal thing that predates Black Sabbath. And um (laughs) what do you prefer, Bill and Ted's hell or Fantasia's hell?
1: (laughs) Uh well prefer in what way as an outside observer or a person going through it?
0: Um I just as a personal taste matter.
1: Probably Bill and Ted. I think I just like the concept of of being able to to cheat death, and that death tries to cheat you back. I just I just love that idea.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so that's 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 my favorite cinematic hell. That's why I'm
1: bringing and, it up. Well, <laughs> and I also got to see that one in, in the theater, so I've got a special nostalgic place for Bill and Ted's Hell versus Fantasia, which I'm almost positive I first saw on VHS, and it might not have been the most interesting. Uh, movie I had seen at that point either.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got to wrap this up before too long, but we definitely have to talk a little bit more about the Sorcerer's Apprentice. That's sort of the calling card of this whole movie.
1: <laughs> well, and and we we barely even touched about Yen Sid, which um, has you know he's the wizard. He's he's Disney himself, and uh, Mickey being the Sorcerer's Apprentice, like that's the sorcerer. So he's just an apprentice to uh, Yen Sid
0: and uh yeah that is the interesting thing um when you do get into magical things or occult things uh just how you go about them because uh he's doing it I guess I guess Mickey's flaw here is doing it out of his own personal laziness
1: out of his laziness and also the very common underlying theme when you get into like occult topics is this idea of profanity and I don't mean bad words I mean like a profane student that is trying to read some magical text or understand some um, o- outside of uh, magical thinking, it would be like someone approaching a very deep, complex, philosophical theory and it just completely filling them up, up with like depression to the point of suicide. And they just like exit the world because they revealed some truth that their their brain was just not ready for yet. So if you take that and apply that, like, philosophical dread that leads you to suicide, but you take that in, like, a magical context, that's this idea of, like, you don't let a profane student access to this deeper knowledge that you have to, like, work your way up to. And essentially, when Mickey puts on this sorcerer's hat, it's, like, his shortcut uh, skipping all of that hard work that he really needed to do to, like, become an actual wizard. He just puts the hat on. And now he's wielding all this power and he has no idea what to do with it. And you see everything kind of ensues from there, you know, like he accidentally creates an entire universe um, while the the wizard's away, you know, from Big Bang all the way to uh, paganism being stamped out by Christianity and Ave Maria, like the the whole entire thing, like humanity uh, starts and, and flourishes all in the course of Mickey trying to skirt his responsibility to clean up the kitchen.
0: I've, I've been told the most important things when approaching some sort of situation like this is focus and intention, focus and intention. He has no focus because he's taking a nap and his intentions are like stupid. So he's he's screwed up in both respects. But yeah, then exactly. we have all the segments where if the world he creates at the end, that that could be the rest of the Fantasia. As you mentioned, it goes Mickey creates the Bing Bang and that that world has no problem on its own. It has interesting things. But in Mickey's world, he screwed up.
1: And we didn't talk about uh, movies outside of Fantasia, but there's a, another reoccurring theme in a lot of these movies. Pinocchio is another big one. Um, but in Fantasia specifically, you can consider Mickey as this Gnostic concept of not God, but the demurge, which is this flawed God, which so like the actual God is somewhere out there and the actual ineffable, infallible God created a sort of like sub-god and this is the, the the demurge and the demurge then created our reality and our world and the explanation here is that our world and humanity are filled with flaws because the god that created us is also a flawed god it's not like the biblical god it's this demurge so again in fantasia you can almost look at like yen sid as the actual god And as Mickey, this apprentice that kind of like wandered in and, um, you know, most like someone turned on the fire hose and had, he had no idea what to do with it. Uh, And it just kind of like flies all over the place. He's this demurge that created this flawed um, earth. And that's sort of this entire story that takes place over Fantasia. But again, wrapping it back to this overarching theory that the movie in itself, de facto actually created and sustained the Disney universe as we know it today. Like, if that movie didn't exist, maybe Disney would still be as it is today. But if you look at it as this was the the main catalyst for saying, I don't want to just start making movies and repurposing grim fairy tales and selling them to movie theaters. I want to like create IP and this whole entire concept of, you know, when you come and see a Disney movie, you leave all of your beliefs and your logic at the door, and you enter like a brand new universe. Um, so that fulfilling, you know that that actually happens through this movie and everything that comes after it.
0: Another actually, still Disney movie. Uh, I just did a podcast about a uh, Tron, and this didn't even come up until like the last five minutes of our podcast, I think. But we're like, yeah, well, once the 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 lady version, what's her name, uh, Yori, um, realizes that. Jeff Bridges' character is a user and actually created the program. She wants to start asking him like philosophical questions, you know, yeah. what does it all mean? Yeah. And and he's like, I just I made the program to because I want to make a
1: game. <laughs> and again, he's in that case, he's the demures, you know, he's the flawed god that, that created a, a flawed production, but they see him as the ultimate god.
0: Now, an interesting thing in there is that the villain, though, is the MPC, it's it's not. Flynn, Flynn would be the creator in this case. He created the game, but the, the, you know, the evil source is not actually the demiurge in that case.
1: Well, well, the evil it would just be like any other, because even uh, Gnosticism has so many ties to kind of like modern Christianity. So again, this concept of evil and Satan, really it's derived not from an adversary, but the lack of um, whatever inspired, you know, God. So it's it's just the lack of God. It's the uh, being without that. So if, if um, the, the, the Mirge was kind of the programmer that created this whole world, the NPC is just something that exists outside of the programmer's input. So it doesn't have to be adversarial necessarily. It's just something that lacks that sort of human ingenuity, that, that divine spark, I guess, that allowed the human to then create something in, in the human's image because the NPC can't create something in its image. A
0: couple more things. Just where is Mickey creating this? I I wrote, Mickey is now painting in the astral, suggesting that he would create the world of Fantasia on the astral. Although that could just be another dimension of reality as That's well. That's a great so,
1: question. Uh, honestly, you, you made a good point before that, dis, uh, that Mickey's doing all this almost without intention. His intention is, I want to, you know, I want to clean up the quickest way possible without doing it myself. Um, So I don't know. I think I think what what results is not necessarily something that that Mickey ever intends to have as a result.
0: One other thing I found just with lucid dreaming or really profound meditational experiences or things, um, they tend to come. They tend to happen when I'm not being creative. When I'm making music and I'm, you know, doing a ton of podcasts and all that sort of stuff, maybe I'm writing, I tend not to have those experiences. It's kind of when I'm like, nothing's really going on. That's when I, it's like, when you well, know, like, to the I, point, isn't
1: it? Cause yeah. I mean, I, 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 sort of taught myself how to meditate before I knew what it was, but before like I heard the concept and to me it was, I realized at one point that if I closed my eyes, I wasn't seeing black or darkness it was just a lack of vision. And once like, it's it's such a hard thing to describe, but once that that concept like clicked and it's like, I'm not seeing something, I'm not seeing nothing. It's just like the lack of seeing anything that can just set me directly into like a meditative state almost. And yeah, again, right. I, and I think that's because it's it's almost like you're just emptying your mind so that, you know, you're not trying to think of colors. You're not trying to put forms or or categorize things as humans um, we're like cursed with just constantly trying to categorize everything that comes across us so the second you can turn that off I think it's almost like a prerequisite and I I don't know how you could work on music or art um, and not be categorizing the things that you're doing you know what I mean
0: yeah you have to take it that way but you know I like to make music that would inspire that kind of experience that's the weird thing I, I don't know if you know the band uh, Spaceman 3 but they have the album was it um mute? music to make music to take drugs to or something <laughs> making <sounds> music <laughs> making music to make music to take drugs to is the name of the <laughs> album right <laughs> you can't really like take drugs and make the music can you i mean you can but you you got to sober up and like work on it at some point so <laughs> maybe that's it you got to sober up and work on it at some point so
1: at least for the mastering maybe not maybe not for anything else composition everything's up in the air
0: making music to meditate to, but you can't meditate when you're making the music. I don't know, something like that. So um, which brings us back to the actual sorcerer as well. I mean, he's we don't really know what stage, if he's in a creative stage or in a, a passive stage, which I think is important for magical things, what kind of you know, when, same uh, with-
1: there's a there's a, such a really cool talk by I think it's Alan Moore, and he's got this great concept of how artwork and creating music and art is synonymous with magic. You're essentially, you're creating something out of nothing. Um, and even if, if that something is the result of all sorts of influences and, you know, other art and other music that you've heard, the fact that you can just kind of sit down without anything going on and produce something that wasn't there before, that's almost an exact definition of magic. You know, you sit down with the will and the intent and you create something from nothing essentially. I mean, how was that not magic?
0: Yeah, so I, I guess in the end, Fantasia is a bit of an egregore that has been lasting for fifty years plus.
1: <laughs> I mean, I, I think there's a very, very strong case, especially if you look at how powerful Disney has become over the years. Now, obviously, there's you know business acumen and uh, mm-hmm. and all sorts of like strategy involved in that. It wasn't just that uh, a bunch of pagans got together and made a silly movie in the '40s, and <laughs> they're just like you know reaping the benefits of the the magic that they put out into the world but uh this i mean fantasia is so ingrained in disney dna even if it's not the most popular thing that they've put out um it is the most sort of like comprehensive and far-reaching for that time like at no other point had disney put something out in aggregate that was such a a big risk you know what i mean like fantasia wasn't based on a best-selling book like the brothers grim which was only outsold by the Bible for, you know, hundreds of years. Um, so it's it's very hard to kind of compare the two.
0: Well, I guess I need to be wrapping up today just to let you know I have a train to catch eventually, but uh, okay. oh, yeah. if, if you could I tell people, work, <laughs> yeah, if you could tell people a little bit about uh, where to find you and what you're up to.
1: Oh, yeah, thanks. So I've, I've got a website called paranoidamerican.com. That's pretty much the best way to find out what I'm up to. Uh, I'm on Instagram. It's the only social media I use. It's also at Paranoid American. And like you mentioned at the beginning of the show, I've been working ever since I was at Disney. I, you know, I was um, got got to work with all sorts of world class artists and animators. And while I was there, I was like, hey, I want to start working on something of my own, even if I can't draw. So I'd have them sketch some things out for me over lunch or whatever. And eventually, that turned into publishing my own written comics for over ten years now. So if you go to paranoidamerican.com you can see a large selection of all different comics that that i've been writing
0: i saw i haven't read to uh read them yet but i did see there's one about um faking the moon landings with kubrick i'm like oh i gotta read that
1: (laughs) that was that one's called never a straight answer which uh, stands for uh, nasa and yeah it's about stanley kubrick shooting the moon landing although it it takes the fact that he faked the moon landings as such a matter of fact so the comic really is like that's happening in the background and the actual things happening to Stanley are just like um, him being frustrated with uh, the red tape of government, you know, and he wants to get this big budget and we have to go to Antarctica and get this exact meteorite for this scene. Cause this is the closest one that would look like on the moon surface and, um, you know, get like getting pushed back from generals and the CIA and stuff. So it's almost like a, like an office water cooler comedy, like mundane things happening in a really crazy environment.
0: Yeah, I'll definitely have to check that one out. As for this podcast, it's Oral Hygiene. We're at uh, Twitter at Oral Hygiene Pod, Facebook, a little more socials than you have, I guess. Uh, I also talk about sci-fi movies at Matt and Luke's Sci-Fi Sanctuary, The Twilight Zone, at Time Enough podcast, and you can find this all at Patreon under the umbrella of podcastio podcastius. So. <laughs> Okay, Thomas. It's it's been, a like
1: a magic spell you just cast, right? Then
0: it is. I you know I finally got good <laughs> doing it. Um, my Luke, my my co-host he, he he just got in a rant where he would do it right. And he was like, I hate myself every time I do this. And now that I've been doing more of my solo podcasting, I have to do it too. So yeah, I just kind of <laughs> trance out and say it. I was like not even paying attention when I was saying it's truth. So yes, yes, it is a bit of a spell. I hope I cast the spell so people will go listen to some podcasts. <laughs> okay we'll go wish upon some stars did you advance the film strip are you on the final page well done